midst of wolves. Be ye therefore wise as serpents and harmless as doves. But beware of men, for they will deliver you up to the councils, and they will scourge you in the synagogues. And ye shall be brought before governors and kings for my sake, for a testimony against them and the, gent- and the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, take no thought how or what ye shall speak, for it shall be given you in that same hour what ye shall speak. For it is not ye that speak, but the spirit of your father which speaketh in you. And the brother shall deliver up the brother to death, and the father the child. And the children shall rise up against their parents, and cause them to be put to death. And ye shall be hated of all men for my name's sake. But he that endureth to the end shall be saved. But when they persecute you in this city, flee ye into another. For verily I say unto you, ye shall not have gone over the cities of Israel, Till the Son of Man be come. The disciple is not above his master, nor the servant above his Lord. It is enough for the disciple that he be as his master, and the servant as his Lord. If they have called the master of the house Beelzebub, how much more shall they call them of his household? Fear them not, therefore, for there is nothing covered that shall not be revealed, and hid that shall not be known. What I tell you in darkness, that speak ye in light. And what ye hear in the ear, that preach ye upon the housetops. And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Are not two sparrows sold for a farthing? And one of them shall not fall on the ground without your father. But the very hairs of your head are all numbered. Fear ye not therefore, for fear ye not therefore, ye are more value than many sparrows. Whosoever therefore shall confess me before men, him will I confess also before my Father, which is in heaven. But whosoever shall deny me before men, him will I also deny before my Father, which is in heaven. Think not that I am come to send peace on the earth. I, am, I came not to send peace, but a sword. For I am come to set a man at variance against his father, and the daughter against her mother, and the daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. And a man's foes shall be they of his own household. He that loveth father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. And he that loveth son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. And he that taketh not his cross and followeth after me is not worthy of me. He that findeth his life shall lose it. And he that loseth his life for my sake shall find it. He that receiveth you receiveth me. And he that receiveth me receiveth him that sent me. He that receiveth a prophet in the name of a prophet shall receive a prophet's reward. And he that receiveth a righteous man in the name of a righteous man shall receive a righteous man's reward. And whosoever shall give to drink unto one of these little ones a cup of cold water only in the name of the disciple, verily I say unto you, he shall in no wise lose his reward. You may be seated. Good morning. Last time that I preached here, I talked about how Jesus is the Prince of Peace. Afterward, someone told me how Jesus does not bring peace, but also a sword, like we see in verse 34 here. So that's what I want to preach about, Jesus' sword. There's a story I want to read first before I get into the message. Calvin Cochran quickly rose through the ranks to become Treesport's first African-American fire chief. 
Eight years later, Cochran was invited to head Atlanta's fire department, making it one of only 60 U.S. departments to receive a Class 1 rating. Although Cochran is the committed Christian, he carefully observed workplace rules about faith, discussing religion only with those who approached him first. He led Bible studies in his church and formed a, and formed a study group for men, which led him to write a privately published book on authentic manhood. He gave the book only to people with whom he had shared his faith and as a courtesy to Atlanta's mayor and a handful of civic leaders. Almost a year after the book's publication, council member Alex Wan read the few pages outlining the biblical approach to sexuality, that fornication is contrary to God's will. That's when the trouble began. Meetings among Atlanta's top Officials followed, and as the National Review reported, on January 6, 2015, the city of Atlanta fired Cochran without providing him the proper process prescribed by city codes, and he claims without providing him an opportunity to respond to either his suspension or his termination. At no point did any employee of the fire department complain of mistreatment or discrimination. Juan, however, made the reason for Cochran's dismissal clear. When you're a city employee and your thoughts and beliefs and opinions are different from the city's, you have to check them at the door. A story like this is happening more and more in America today. America was started on Christian principles, but we can see that there has been a shift in a spiritual climate. We can see that there is a sword that is dividing our country, causing intolerance, rejection, and even hatred. The Bible talks a lot about this, and Jesus said that it is expected. And the question that we need to ask is, which side am I on? Am I, or are you, a true disciple of our Lord Jesus Christ? I hope that I don't bring too much confusion about peace, about what I preached about last time. The work of peace here on this earth is not yet complete as what Jesus would want it to be. We have peace when God, we have peace with God when we are born again, and we strive to live in peace with all men. At Jesus' first coming, he brings a sword to this earth. At Jesus' second coming, he will bring total and complete, complete peace to all mankind and all creatures on this earth. What does Jesus mean when he says that he brings a sword? In Luke 12, 51, 52, it brings it out a little bit more clearer. Suppose ye that I am come to bring peace. Sorry. Suppose ye that I am come to give peace on earth. I tell you nay, but rather division. For whence, for from henceforth there shall be five in one house divided, three against two and two against three. The gospel brings the division. The sword divides. 
What do you think about when you think of a sword? There is war, and like I said, there is division. Is it Jesus that actually causes the division? Let's think about it a little bit. Is Jesus the one that causes division? No, it is the unbelievers that cause the division. God being holy and hating sin, and man being unholy and living in sin. Ever since the Garden of Eden, because of sin, man is separated from God. Jesus came and brought to us redemption so that we can come to the Father. And because of that, there has been a division. The division is between unbelievers being unholy, living in sin, and also rebelling against God. And that's the key there, the rebellion against God. And believers living holy lives and living above sin through Christ Jesus. So we see the difference or the division that is caused here by the unbelievers. So why are unbelievers so much against the Christians? Why is the world against the Christians? I have eight reasons here why this is the case. Number one, the world is against us because it hates reproof. Another word for reproof is blame. The world does not want to be told that they are not living the right way. They are doing what they feel is right. They want to live their own way. Proverbs 9.8, it says, Reprove not a scorner, lest he hate thee. Rebuke a wise man, and he will love thee. We notice the word hate. Reprove not a scorner, and he hates us. Number two, another reason why the world is against us, because it's sin and wickedness are exposed by Christian living. Romans 12, 2, it says, And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that ye may prove... That what is, which is what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. We are proving to those around us what is good and acceptable and perfect will of God. Titus 2, 11 through 12, it says, For the grace of God that bringeth salvation hath appeared to all men, teaching us, that denying ungodliness and worldly lust, we should live soberly, righteously, and godly in this present world. The grace of God has appeared to all men. And because of that, it teaches us how to live. It teaches the wicked how to live, except they reject the teacher. Another reason that the world is against us is because its darkness is exposed by Christian light. When we become born again, we are moved from darkness to light. And what that means is, in other words, we came from not knowing the truth, walking around aimlessly, stumbling and falling in the darkness, to living in the light of the truth of God, which is found in the Word of God. John three eighteen to 20, it says, He that believeth on him is not condemned, but he that believeth not is condemned already, because he hath not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. 
And this is the condemnation that light has come into the world and men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. For everyone that doeth evil hateth the light, neither cometh to the light lest his deeds should be reproved. The reason why the world is against us, men love darkness rather than light because of their deeds. Their deeds are evil. That's why they don't they are against us. And if you think about it, this is very foolish. But that is how we all were before we were before we became Christians. Philippians two fifteen it says that ye may be blameless and harmless, the sons of God, without rebuke, in the midst of a crooked and perverse nation, among whom ye shine as lights in the world. The Christians who are blameless and harmless, shine as lights in this crooked and perverse world. This is why the world is against us. Another reason that the world is against us is because we are not of the world. We do not belong to the world. We, we separate ourselves from the world because of the vast difference between Christians and non-Christians. John fifteen nineteen it says, If ye were of the world, the world will love this the world will love his own. But but because ye are not of the world, but I have chosen you out of the world, therefore the world hateth you. The world hates us because we are chosen by God. Everyone has a void in their lives that need to be filled so that they can worship someone. When the unbeliever sees that our void is in our lives is filled by someone that is eternal and brings fulfillment, they hate us. John seventeen fourteen to 16, it says, I have given them thy word, and the world hath hated them, because they are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. I pray not that thou shouldest take them out of the world, but that thou shouldest keep them from the evil. They are not of the world, even as I am not of the world. We, are, we also are not of the world, because Jesus, our follower, our rock, the one that we find security in, is not a part of the world. He does not belong to the world, therefore we don't belong to the world as well. Another reason that the world is against us is because it has a natural enmity against God. James 4, 4 says, Ye adulterers and adulteresses, know ye not that the friendship of the world is enmity with God? Whosoever therefore will be a friend of the world is the enemy of God. The world is an enemy of God, and we are, if we're Christians, a friend to God. The world opposes God. Another reason that the world is against us is because Christians hate its ways. We as Christians don't follow after the things of the world. First John two fifteen to seventeen it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, and the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passeth away in the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. As Christians, we crucify the flesh. The unbelievers, 
they fulfill the lusts of the flesh. As Christians, we guard our eyes from the wicked or from wicked. The unbelievers fulfill the lusts of their eyes. As Christians, we say that it is all because of Jesus in our lives that we have victory. The unbeliever says that I accomplish my victories because of my own achievements. The world is against us because of its ignorance of God. That's number seven. John 15, 20 to 21, it says, Remember the word that I said unto you, The servant is not greater than his Lord. If they have persecuted me, they will also persecute you. If they have kept my saying, they will also, they will keep yours also. But all things, but all these things will they do unto you for my name's sake, because they know not him that sent me. The world persecutes us because they don't know God. They don't even acknowledge him. They say that he doesn't even exist. That is another reason why the world is against us because of the ignorance of God. Number eight, the world is against us because of the savor, because of the smell. Second Corinthians two fifteen and 16, it says, For we are unto God a sweet savor of Christ in them that are saved and in them that perish. To the ones, to the one we are the savor of death unto death and to the other the savor of life unto life and who is sufficient for these things smells can impact a person pretty quick we as Christians are a savor of death to the unbelievers that is a bad smell to them so we can see now here um, how Jesus when he came it brought division how there is a sword that divides and separates from the true disciple to the unbeliever. When we become a true disciple, God, Jesus, does not call us to a life of ease, but to a life of faithfulness. And we did hear a little bit about that last week with Dave's message on the life of Caleb. Some examples of faithfulness, no matter what the cost that we see in Scripture, uh, number one, Cain and Abel in Genesis. And we know that story, how Cain brought the fruit of the ground as an offering to God, and God was, was not pleased with his um, offering. And Cain, Abel brought the firstling of his flock as an offering to God. And God had respect for Abel's offering and no respect for Cain's offering. And we see in Genesis what happened because of that. Cain grew angry toward his brother and killed him, even after God told Cain what he needed to do. There was a division there in Cain and Abel's life. And Dave last week talked about the 12 spies that were sent out to spy out Canaan. And I won't go into that at all because Dave did that last week. Another division that we see in scripture and I'm sure there's many others that we could find but between the Pharisees and Jesus Jesus was faithful to God by coming down to this earth to do his father's will. These Pharisees were called wolves 
because of their nature. They were cruel, greedy, and destructive men. They went against Jesus and his teachings often. Eventually, they persecuted Jesus and eventually killed him. Today, in our churches across America, across the globe, there is divide as well. Many people say that they are disciples of Christ, but they forget that there is a separation, that there is a division. They say that they are disciples of Christ, but yet they still operate like the world. There is no change when they are born again. Jesus wants true disciples. He wants genuine disciples. Paul says in Romans that not all Israel are Israel. Just because you are a Jew outwardly doesn't mean that you are a Jew inwardly. Just because we are a member and attend church every Sunday doesn't mean that we are a true disciple of Christ. Which one are you? Jesus often spoke to his disciples about being true about being true, about being genuine. Are you a true disciple? Now I want to go back here to Matthew 10, where Glenn read this morning. Um, there are some tests that we can see if we are true disciples or not in this passage here. And I have 10 of them, 10 tests of discipleship. Number one, we see that in 24 and 25. Um, world persecution are you able to suffer persecution for the cause of Christ? Jesus is our master, and they called him Beelzebub. And that was identified as prince of demons in that day. If we are his followers, how much more should we expect persecution when we follow Jesus? And you may ask, what for persecution am I suffering? I am not being hunted down or killed. But I think most persecutions is not just only violence, but it is a squeezing out. It is also it's a squeezing out of Christians in five areas of our life, and we read about that in that story in the beginning of the sermon. And the five areas of life are in private, family, community, national, and church. We can definitely see that in America today, in the workforce or at school. The Christians are being squeezed out. Our Christian faith is to be left at home instead of being with us wherever we go. Oftentimes during persecution, true Christians become bolder. While we are not physically suffering now, we can definitely prepare for it. <clears throat> Paul sent Timothy to the believers in Thessalonica to establish and to comfort them concerning their faith so that they wouldn't be moved during tribulations. I think we should remind ourselves it will happen at some point in our life if we are true disciples. How do we establish our faith in God? By reading the word of God, by believing what he says, by interacting with fellow believers. I think that is one way that we can establish our faith in God. 
Don't waste the opportunity that we have now to do it. God has given us the opportunity to become firm in our faith. So we are ready in time of tribulations. The second test of discipleship is, do we have fearless preaching? And we see that in verse 26 and 27. This point is not only, or not just for the pastors. We are all called to proclaim the word of God wherever we are at. At home, and at school, to our children, at our jobs, and even in church, whether it is teaching Sunday school, having a topic, or devotions, or leading out in singing, or even offering a word of encouragement to someone that is hurting. If God reveals to you that you should speak truth to someone, proclaim it. Do not fear man so as to hide unwanted truth. The truth will be revealed at judgment if we don't share it now. How are we to, pre to preach it? It says here that we are to preach it from the rooftops. From the housetops in verse 27. Their rooftops were flat and often used for public proclamation and other activities. Be bold. Preach it out. Let people know the truth of God's word. The third way um, that we can know if we are a true disciple is do we have fearless consecration? And we see that in verse 28. What does consecration mean? To wholly dedicate yourself to something of greatest importance. I'm just going to read verse 28. It says, And fear not them which kill the body, but are not able to kill the soul. But rather fear him which is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Do we fear man over fearing God? Would we rather protect our reputation than obeying what God wants us to do? In Luke it says, be not, afraid that, be not afraid of them that kill the body, and after that they have nothing more that they can do. The body will eventually die, but our soul and spirit will live on forever and ever. All that man can do to us today is put our body into the grave, but they cannot touch our soul and spirit. God alone can cast our bodies into hell, cast us into hell if we don't fear him. And I know this maybe, it sounds harder than, um, yeah, sometimes we value our bodies more than our souls. I'm not saying that we can do whatever we want to our bodies because it's going to die anyway. No, let's make sure we fear God. To be absolutely struck with fear. To be seized with alarm because of where our soul can go if we choose to fear man. Let's obey God more than man. Another test of discipleship. We see that in verse 29 to 31. Is do we have fearless faith? 
God promises to care for us. Are we trusting in him to provide for us? And we see that God notices the sparrows, the birds that are very inexpensive. He notices them when they fall to the ground. He also notices the very fine details about us, the amount of hair that we have on our heads. If God looks after the sparrows, the ones that are very inexpensive and that fall to the ground, he will also look after us and care for us no matter what comes our way. Do we have fearless faith? Are we trusting in God to care for us? Another test of discipleship is we see in verse 32 and 33 do we confess Christ boldly do we profess that we worship Christ when we confess Christ we are acknowledging that he is our Lord and Savior we are also affirming a state of oneness with him and when we think about oneness, it's a picture, a picture that we think about is a marriage relationship, those that are married. A man and a woman become one. Their dreams, their lives become one. There are still two different people with different characteristics coming together to create a beautiful union. When we are a true disciple of Christ, we will confess him. We will not only speak that we confess Christ, but our lives will also live that way. If we deny Jesus, he will also deny us as his father and disciple. Do we confess Jesus no matter what the cost may be, even if it costs our life? The sixth test of discipleship, we see that in 34 and 36 is is there persecution in our families this was prophesied in the old testament that when the messiah would come there would be divisions in the families micah 7 5 to 6 it says pretty much the same thing as it talks about in verse 35 a true disciple forsakes the family jesus sword sometimes divides our family the word at variance means to cut asunder. In other words, I will cut a man off totally from his father and a daughter from her mother. When it affects the family, it gets a little harder. It is easier to feel rejection because of your faith when it's your neighbor or co-worker. But when it is, involves our family members, that is when it seems more dif difficult. It is in the home where your affection and love is at, where you can find security and peace. But in a separation of a family, this is a sign, though, of a true disciple. Matthew 19, 29 says, There is a reward for you in heaven if you have experienced this. And I know some of you here in this audience has experienced the division within the home. Continue on being faithful to God. He will carry you through. <clears throat> Another test of discipleship is found in verse 37. 
Do we put God first in our lives? Are we committed to following God above our family? Matthew twenty two thirty seven. it says, Jesus said unto him, Thou shalt love the Lord thy God with all thy heart, and with all thy soul, and with all thy mind. We are to love God with all our heart, our inward affections, with our soul, our all consciousness, and with our mind, all our thoughts. Are we committed to God in every area of our life? Matthew eight twenty seven. there was a disciple that was not true to Jesus. He was more concerned about burying his father that hasn't even died yet. Luke 9, 61 and 62, there was another man that wanted to follow Jesus, but he wanted to first bid farewell to his family, go back to his home, people that could possibly change his mind in following Jesus. It says, under this type of person is not fit for the kingdom of God. In verse 37 too it says here, that this type of person is not worthy of me. If we are wanting to impress other people instead of God, we are not worthy of Jesus. In other words, he is not worthy of the fellowship that he can have with Christ and of the blessings connected with it. Another test of discipleship in verse 38. Do we bear our cross daily? What does it mean to bear our cross? The cross to the disciples meant dying. Back in that time, criminals were often, they had to carry the cross beam for their own execution. And we know that's what happened with Jesus as well. When we bear our cross, we need to deny ourselves. We need to say no to self and yes to God. I think this is the first and most important step we need to take. We need to humbly submit our will to God, even if it costs our life here on this earth. This is not just a once and done thing. This is something that we need to do daily. We need to do this every single day of our life. Are we willing to die for the sake of Christ? Again, it says, if we don't, we are not worthy to Jesus. Another test of discipleship is, do we follow Jesus? And we see that there in verse 38 as well. How do we follow Jesus? Do we obey his word? Are we striving to be more like him? Just like a sheep following the shepherd, we need to daily and throughout our life follow him, follow the shepherd. This is done through the aid of the Holy Spirit. Jesus promised that when he ascended up to heaven, that he would send a helper to his disciples, and that is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit helps us. To follow Jesus means we apply the truth we learned from his word and to live as if Jesus is with us today in person. And in reality, he is with us and sees everything that we do. Do we follow Jesus? 
Another test of discipleship is do we deny ourselves? In verse 39, are we concerned about, are we concerned more about our reputation in this life than following Jesus? Are we still living after the flesh? If we are, we will lose everything and we'll spend our life in hell. If we lose our life in this life for Jesus' sake, we will find it again in the next life. Let us die to our flesh and allow God's spirit to control our lives so that we may live. Again, we need to ask a question. Are you, am I, a true disciple of Jesus? Where are you at? And just as a little bit of a positive side, we've been, this whole mess was a little bit kind of negative about persecution. We see in verse 42, and I talked a little bit about it, that when we are faithful to the Lord in difficult times, he will reward us. God promises a reward when we are faithful to him. And it is even as small as giving a cup of cold water to one of these little ones. It doesn't go unnoticed with Jesus. He will reward us. Now, if you want to turn to Matthew 25, I want to talk a little bit about um, the final separation or one of the final separations. There's a couple of verses here that I want to read in verse chapter 25 of Matthew. Now, maybe taking this out of context a little bit, but I want to especially point out the separating and the dividing. I want to read verse 32 to 34. And before him shall be gathered all nations, and he shall separate them one from another as a shepherd divideth his sheep from the goats. And he shall set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on the left. Then shall the king say unto them on his right hand, Come, ye blessed of my father, inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. And jumping down to verse 41. Then shall he say also unto them on the left hand, Depart from me, ye curse, into everlasting fire, prepared for the devil and his angels. In verse 46, And these shall go away into everlasting punishment, but the righteous unto life eternal. After this time, there will be peace forever between all men and beasts. There will not be any separation, division. All will live in harmony and peace. All mankind. The question we need to ask ourselves, which side are you on? Will you be a true disciple of Jesus Christ and live in peace with the Lord and mankind? Or will you be a false disciple fighting against the truth and what is right? Jesus says in Revelation, Come, all those that hear, come if you are thirsty, and come if you will become. 
His eyes, sorry, his arms are open wide. Come, let us kneel to pray. Mm-hmm.